Welcome to 7-Minute Torah. I'm Rabbi Micah Streifer. In this podcast, we explore the weekly Torah portion in about 7 to 10 minutes. We make modern meaning out of ancient texts, exploring them through liberal Jewish eyes. To become a supporter of this podcast, please visit patreon.com slash 7-Minute Torah. All right, welcome everybody. I am very pleased for the second week in a row to have an interview episode for you. This week with Rabbi Andy Kahn, who is the editor of a book that just came out yesterday that's called The Sacred Earth. It's about Judaism and our relation as human beings to the earth. We're going to be talking about Shlach Lecha, which is Numbers chapters 13 through 15. Now, Shlach Lecha is not ostensibly about the earth per se. On the surface, it might have made more sense to do this interview the week of Bereshit. What Shlach Lecha is about is the incident of the scouts, or the spies. In Hebrew, we call them Meraglim. And this is the group of 12 individuals that Moses sends into the land of Israel to scout out the land. They come back bringing a challenging report of what they found there, and the rebellion that follows is the reason that the Israelites have to wander in the desert for 40 years. So as I explore this with Rabbi Khan, we're going to talk about what it is to have responsibility, what it is that we're supposed to do with challenging information, and what it means to be in partnership with each other, with God, and with the world. It's a really interesting conversation. And as usual, we'll spend the first while talking about the Parsha. We'll take a short break after about 10 minutes for those who are only able to stay for that portion of the conversation. And then we'll actually continue talking about the Parsha, about how we Jews and we humans relate to ourselves as residents of this planet, and about what Judaism has to contribute to that conversation as it shifts in this time of post-modernity. Rabbi Andy Kahn, welcome to 7-Minute Torah. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Great to talk with you. You are the incoming director of Yachad, which is the religious school and adult learning at Congregation Beth Elohim in Park Slope. I know there's a new position and you're on a little bit of a a short sabbatical now as you prepare to start your new position. So I hope you're relaxing and enjoying the world uh, during these few weeks. I'm trying as much as I can as, you know, um, both of us were in the uh, fallout from these horrible Canadian wildfires because you're in the Toronto area, right? That's right. So I think you and New York got hit the worst by the smoke and it, it just shows where we're at globally with our climate, with our relationship to the world um, is in a, a huge moment of flux. So I'm trying to relax as much as I can with that knowledge. <laughs> yeah, fair enough, which I think we will talk a lot more about over the course of this conversation. As I'll say more about later, you are the editor of a new book that's just come out that's called The Sacred Earth, which is a compilation of essays by different rabbis and Jewish thinkers about the Jewish relationship to the earth. So I want to hear a lot more about that. And I know we'll relate our our Torah discussion to that as well. So if it's okay with you, let's start off by talking about this week's Parsha. Please. So we're reading Shalach Lecha. And Shalach Lecha is, I like to say both, this is the James Bond section of the Torah, because we have spies. But in some ways, this is also where things go south, right? Our people have made their way to the very border of the promised land. 
It didn't even take that long. It's not like it took 40 years or anything like that. And then they get there and these spies are sent into the promised land to scout things out. As you know, they come back and they bring this report of the land, which is, well, it tells about both what's good and what's challenging. And as a result of that, the people rebel and they want to go back to Egypt and God punishes us by making us wander in the desert for 40 years. So this is a pivotal moment, a watershed moment in Torah, where we are told that we will have to wander. I agree. This is a a huge turning point in the story of liberation, because at this point in the story, the liberation is up to the Israelites, right? They're there. They can go. They can be free. They can have their own land. They can enact the rules of the Torah as their way of living, um, as the only authority over them. Like they are now in the position where they can do that. And just like so many of these pivotal moments in Torah, this one, if if you look closely, um, you can see the scenes of where it was edited by comparing this story and the recapitulation of it in Deuteronomy. There are two different versions of it in the Torah. Um, And Ramban, um, Nachmanides, a a medieval Torah genius, um, has a big chunk on this. And ultimately where he kind of lands on how to make these two seemingly conflicting versions of the story come together is that God didn't tell them to do this. Even though the our story this week in Numbers says that God tells them to do this. God says it's okay for them to do this if Moses wants them to. Ramban compares this to a later section in the Tanakh in the book of Samuel when um, the people demand a king and God doesn't want them to have a king, which is, and this is again, another very pivotal moment in the story of the, uh, the Jewish people. God says, no, you should not have a king. And they say, no, we want, to, we want a king like all of the other people so we can be like all of the other peoples. And now from our contemporary viewpoint, um, the, king, the kings and like King David in particular are thought of as this like wonderful gift of God. But initially that was not the goal. Just like here, the goal was not initially for the Israelites to wander for 40 years, for a whole generation to have to die before they got into the promised land. And um, what this brings up for me, um, and especially in the context of today, is like how much is our desire and our own limited viewpoint centered as humans versus a wider viewpoint that we have to trust in beyond our own individual limitations in order to understand how to be in the world properly. Um, and obviously this is very different for us than it was for the Israelites because they like literally had God hanging out in their camp telling Moses what to do and they could see it and all of that. But um, one of the things that I mentioned to you that um, comes back with the spies is this idea that they went into the land, they saw that the people in the land were giants and that in their own eyes, in the Israelites' own eyes, they saw themselves as grasshoppers in comparison to the giants of the land. And then they assumed that the giants of the land would see them in that same way. Right. I have that phrase in front of me, actually, if I can read it in Hebrew, because I had never noticed what you pointed out, which is that the other people didn't see them this way. It was what they thought the others might see. 
So it says, We looked like grasshoppers to ourselves. So we must have looked that way to them. So they're they're assuming what the other people must have seen without actually knowing what the other people saw in them. Yes. Yeah. Which I think really highlights this, um, the, the actual conflict going on in the story here, which is the conflict between the limitation of individual human perspective and versus the wider, larger perspective usually ascribed to God in, in the Torah and the Tanakh, but um, is different today, right? Mm-hmm. Because we, I'm certainly not going to claim to be able to speak for God or to know God's truth, right? I can like try to derive some like larger message from our tradition. Um, and because we are reform rabbis, we also look to science and modernity and our ability to um, suss out greater truths in the world around us to combine with our uh, classical truths as a way of um, understanding the world around us. And this is where I think the, this contemporary issue around our relationship as humans to the wider world, I, I bristle a little bit at the like humanity versus nature thing, because I think that just recapitulates a framework that's broken. Like we are not versus nature or outside of nature. We are a part of nature. Nature is everything. Um, And that we have the capacity, if we allow the folks that um, do the work with the tools that are bigger than an individual human brain, be it um, the way they measure change or the way that they see the long-term impacts of human behavior um, via long-term studies, there are people who work together, not individually, mind you, which I think is is key, um, to understand where we're headed. And we have the ability today, ourselves, individually, to say, this is such a big thing. This is too big for me to think about, care about, to internalize. Um, I am, in my own eyes, a grasshopper in the face of this incredibly huge shift that's occurring um, that's well beyond my individual capacity to affect. And therefore, I just need to bury my head in the sand. Therefore, I just need to go back to Egypt um, and not even try to figure out what a future could look like that allows for this reality to exist. So in other words, it's a question of what perspective we're trying to take. Are we taking the narrow perspective, which is to say, I can see what I can see? refusing to see the bigger picture, also refusing to see beyond the human perspective, right? Because if human beings look out at the world and we see it as a place that is that exists in order to serve our needs, then we will behave differently than if we see the world and nature as something that we are part of, part of a larger whole. You already pointed out that dichotomy, the idea that there's humanity and there's nature, when in fact, all we are is part of this world. But when we see ourselves as something separate from maybe something even sitting at the pinnacle of this world, then we'll behave very differently than if we try to take the wider perspective and understand the role that we play as grasshoppers, let's call it, in this in this wider thing that we call the universe or nature or the world. Yes, exactly. And I think that 
critics might say, oh, you're just like kind of trying to bring in some like new agey environmentalist viewpoint and, and project it upon um, Jewish tradition. And that's just not true. There is a wonderful text in the Talmud in uh, Erevin 100b, where Rabbi Yochanan says, even if the Torah had not been given, we would nevertheless have learned moral truths from the creatures around us. And he explains what a cat would teach us, what an ant would teach us, what a dove would teach us, and like what a rooster would teach us, right? Just like this, uh, like a handful of animals that I'm sure Rabbi Yochanan encountered every day. But that's actually a really profound statement from the Talmud that the Torah, which, you know, these ancient rabbis saw as direct revelation from God, only has truths in it that we could have learned otherwise, that we could have learned by just being in tune with and humble to the world around us. To learn from a cat, you have to assume that cat knows something you don't know which is the essence of humility. Um, and I think that that can be expanded out well beyond just these handful of animals he names. And I think that that's what he meant, was that we have the Torah. It is a gift from, depending upon your theology from God or from our ancestors, it's almost like a cheat code that lets us not have to relearn these same rules over and over and over again from the world around us. Instead, we have like a code that we can follow that has these rules in it, directly that we don't have to then relearn. But especially now, as we sit in a world where revelation is no longer happening in the form that it happened um, for the ancient Israelites with, you know, an enormous mountain on fire and booms and bangs and hearing God's voice. Now we have to turn to the rest of God's creation to understand our role and our place in it. And we, yes, we're given a specific role within creation as Genesis tells us. But that doesn't mean, as you were just saying, Micah, that we are the pinnacle of the creation. It just means the Torah tells us what our specific role is because it's talking to us. That doesn't mean that our role is more important. That just means we're who's being addressed at that moment. Every aspect of creation in nature has its own specific role that we need to understand and honor. Right, which actually that reminds me of another text from the Talmud, which I don't have the citation in front of me right now, but where the rabbis essentially say that every every part of nature, every part of creation has its assigned role. Uh, even they say those those creatures that you deem to be superfluous, and they name them scorpions, snakes, bugs, gnats, things like that. You know, the, the things you wish didn't exist, maybe. They have their allotted role in creation because... Um, God looked out over the world and said, this world is very good and very good for the rabbis and for medieval Jewish philosophy and for Judaism in general means that this world is an expression of divine wisdom and that the world is good and whole as it is and that we then have a responsibility to take care of it. I, I think the message to me in the end is one of humility. The language of grasshoppers is funny because gra what are grasshoppers? They're small and they're weak. So what the spies are saying is, we think they saw us as small and weak. And that's a bit of a double-edged sword because then it makes them scared. It makes them run away. It makes them not believe that they can do it. It makes them not believe that they have any power to affect this situation. But at the same time, in a sense, they actually were grasshoppers compared with these people. They were smaller and weaker. And I think the, the key is to know that 
both we are small as human beings. We are only a, a part of this world and gnats and flies and snakes and scorpions also have a role to play in this world, but also at the same time that we are incredibly powerful and we actually do have the power to affect change and to make things different than they than they have been before. So I think it's a funny teaching, you know, vis-a-vis what we're talking about here, the idea that we are grasshoppers, because it actually means that we're both small and powerful all at the same time. If it's okay with you, I want to take a short break. We'll come back and we'll continue this conversation about, about the Torah portion and about what it teaches us about how we're supposed to live on earth. Yeah. Hi, friends. Thanks for listening. Hope you're enjoying the conversation so far. I want to take this opportunity to say a big thank you to all of those who support 7-Minute Torah, who give a small amount either on a per-episode basis or on a monthly basis to support the production of this podcast and the creation of serious, interesting, progressive Jewish learning. Remember that you can support 7-Minute Torah either by going to lasok.org, L-A-A-S-O-K.org, or you can go to patreon.com slash 7minutetorah. And if you have any questions about that, send me an email at rabbistreifer at gmail.com. Secondly, a reminder that next Monday, I'm offering a class. It's about how to make prayer meaningful. It's going to be on Monday at noon Eastern time. And again, you can register at lasok.org. And I hope to see you in the classroom. Now back to my conversation with Rabbi Andy Kahn. All right. Well, welcome back. Is it okay if I push a little further on something you were talking about a moment ago? Yeah, sure. I think my question is this. You talked about Torah as, I don't remember exactly the language you used, a kind of a blueprint, a cheat book. You know, it gives us this important information that we also can learn from the world around us. What about when Torah gets it wrong? Um, you, we talked about this, this hierarchical language of humanity versus nature. And in many ways, that hierarchy just comes straight out of the first chapter of Genesis, where we're told that humans were created and told to rule over the earth. Now, that's different from Genesis chapter two, where we're the caretakers and the gardeners of the planet, where we're, I think you you have an image there of being much more a part of nature and responsible for nature. But the Torah also teaches us this hierarchical role. It teaches us what I think has been very damaging over the last 3,000 years, which is the idea that we're supposed to rule over and use the planet for our purposes. So what do we do when Torah gets it wrong, so to speak, in that way? So I'm going to, I have a couple different responses. And one of them, I don't know that I fully agree with, but I'm going to say it anyway, (laughs) which is, um, I don't think Torah gets it wrong. I think we read Torah wrong, right? Mm-hmm. There is a um, very strong tradition of going back to the early rabbis and, and getting really made present by Maimonides in the medieval period. The Torah speaks in the language of man, right? Um, Torah speaks in the in words that we will be able to understand in a way that will affect us. Um, as we are speaking to our limitations, but that then also means that um, it is clothed in imperfect language just as we are, and we have to learn to get through that 
and to move past it, right? Um, and so dominion, uh, dominionist theology um, and it, with relationship to um, environmentalism, not with relationship to fundamentalist Christianity um, is, uh, is definitely problematic. And it kind of does come from exactly what you're saying in, in Genesis one, when we get that first story of creation, but it is a single word, which is usually mean meant to have rule over and is compared to the way that monarchs rule over their population. Um, but that kind of ruling um, in the ancient world and I mean, unfortunately, it is something that I feel like we've lost today, ethically and morally, came with its own level of responsibility for those things you're ruling over, mm-hmm. right? If you are a monarch, you are not just granted total power to do whatever you want. You have to use that power wisely or your people will overthrow you. Or um, even in the later um, Tanakhic theology, God will overthrow you. If you are ruling poorly, God will, instead of allying with you as the king of the Israelites, will ally with the Babylonians and take you out. So this verb, rada, or to have dominion, is much more complex than just the idea that we, that everything is here to serve us. We are here in a particular role with a lot of power and that power has to be used mindfully. Um, can I go back to something you were saying as well about um, the grasshopper? Please. Cause I think that is elemental to this question too. The idea that as individuals, these spies saw themselves as grasshoppers in the face of the giants reminded me, the way that you were phrasing it, reminded me of one of my favorite thinkers today that I actually didn't end up quoting um, in in the introduction to this book that uh, just actually was fully released on Monday, June 12th, which was yesterday. Um, uh, her name is Donna Haraway, and she's a, a brilliant, brilliant um, philosopher. And her book in 2018 was primarily about um, how we deal with the facts of climate change. And just the title itself um, is Staying with the Trouble. Um, And that idea of being able to sit in the discomfort of knowing that simultaneously you are a grasshopper in the face of climate change. I, no matter how many bottles I recycle, it is not going to impact what's happening planetarily, right? Like I can turn my lights off. I can switch to like what, what, whatever environmentally sound form of living I personally choose ultimately serves as a symbol of my values and will have very little overall effect on what is going on globally. But being able to stay with that trouble, being able to recognize that I am both a grasshopper and individually have a um, a modicum of power to um, rada, to have dominion over the world around me, and I need to be mindful of how I do that, um, even if it's not going to, in and of itself, 
change the literal outcomes of climate change um, is a really important thing to both internalize individually in this moment and to use as a way to detach our core thinking from this modern viewpoint of our power as individual humans over the earth. Yeah, it's very interesting to think about the ways that we that we do and don't have power because of course as a as a civilization we have a great deal of power. If we were to make major changes, we have incredible power by sheer force of our numbers of our presence on the planet. And yet that doesn't necessarily translate to you and me being able to reverse climate change by recycling or by driving a different car. And But if enough people do, if we talk about it enough, if we publish enough books like yours, if we have these conversations, then we, we do see people's hearts and minds changing over time. And so I suppose that, again, is the double-edged sword of being the grasshopper. Um, the idea of of sitting in the discomfort actually reminded me of something else from, from the Parsha to bring it back to the spies for a moment, which is that the commentators ask, what was the, what was the sin of the spies? And, you know, at first glance, it looks like they came back and they, they, they whipped the people up into a frenzy with all this scary, maybe even false information. But if you look really closely at the story, you see that the spies didn't lie at all. They didn't say anything that wasn't true. They they said things that were uncomfortable. They gave they gave inconvenient truths to use language that also relates to the environmental crisis. And so the Ramban, you mentioned the Ramban earlier as well. So the Ramban comments on this as well. And he says, essentially, he asked this question, what did the spies get wrong? They were sent into the land to bring back this information. They brought back the information What's so wrong about that? The answer, he says, is that what they got wrong was saying the word FS. FS means but or however. What came after the however was, we don't think we can handle this. We can't do it. It's a hopeless situation in our eyes. So I think the key then to sitting in the, the inconvenient information, which we have a lot of these days coming our way, is to also believe that there is still change that can be done, is that we have the power and that we actually have the responsibility to keep moving forward as opposed to, like you put it earlier, wanting to go wanting to go back to Egypt. Yes, I agree completely. I think that the ability to sit in that discomfort and know that we are going to go forward no matter what is core. And so is the humility to know that to a certain degree, individually, we have very little control over what that future is going to look like, no matter how much work we put in. And I think the next the next step in the story of the spies actually is a cautionary tale for us today um, when it comes to uh, our response to environmental catastrophe. The Israelites get told this is what's going to happen now that you've all decided that God isn't powerful enough to bring you into the land. You're going to have to wander for 40 years, and this entire generation is going to die um, before the next generation gets to make it into freedom. And the Israelites panic, right? They are unable to sit in that discomfort. And they're like, no, 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 no. We were just kidding. We we're just joking. No, we're going we're gonna to go in. We're going to actually, we're so pumped about going in. We're going to go in right now. And they just 
run into the land, the place they've been told is very dangerous and they would need to prepare well to go into, and they just get slaughtered. They overcorrect. They overreact to the news they are given. And it and the problem is that they are reacting from the exact same place that they reacted the first time of their own um, individual discomfort, allowing them to make knee-jerk choices that don't take into account the fact that uh, what it is that they're actually being asked to do, which is in this instance, being asked to trust that God's got a plan. God's got them this far. God has parted the Red Sea. God has brought so much meat to them when they were asking for meat that it came out their nose. God has done all kinds of crazy stuff for them. And they're being asked one, one more time to just say, okay, God's got this. God's got a plan. Um, and they can't. They can't sit with that discomfort of not being in control. And that's ultimately what's going on here is that they want control over the outcome and they, they don't have it. I wonder if ultimately it comes down to partnership. The problem with the, what the people do, both when they want to go back to Egypt and when they go charging into the land, is that they do it themselves. They're not looking to be in partnership with God in, in those moments. And I think the way that translates again to the climate crisis, because I, I, for one, I'm not willing to just say God must have a plan, so let's keep doing what we're doing, right? I don't think that that's how we should be managing the climate crisis. And I suspect that's not what you're saying. But no. the idea that we are responsible to be partners with God and partners in taking care, in taking this wider view and taking care of this planet, I think the minute we think we're on our own here, we have forgotten who we are and what we're supposed to be doing, which is to say you can't just charge forward without thinking about who you're charging forward for and what you're doing and what your responsibility is here. And we also, it would be unconscionable to not move forward. It would be unconscionable to keep behaving the way that we're behaving and assuming that we just get to do whatever we want here, that we have we have no partner out there either in God or in the planet and our fellow creatures on this planet whose perspective we have to take in this. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think what it is is dethroning humanity, right? Modernity, the whole project of modernity was the idea that um, humanity is the pinnacle of creation. Humanity is God's chosen species and that we therefore can do whatever we want to the planet for our own purposes. And in fact, we are required to. Francis Bacon, who was one of the main thinkers um, leading towards ultimately the Industrial Revolution, but the Industrial Revolution is much more than just um, easier farming. It completely changed how we understood ourselves from a philosophical perspective. Um, and the framing of what was being called nature at the time was extraordinarily violent that we were supposed to, as a species, do extreme violence to nature in order to show it who was boss. That is the legacy of modernity, which we are now seeing perhaps come to fruition fully because we did exactly what you were saying. This We, we decided as a species in the West and then um, through colonialism and other forms of version of thought, moved it throughout the world, that humanity is supposed to be this particular way, right? 
Um, and that, and we are now seeing the fruits of that in, um, in climate change. And one of the primary goals of this book was to delve deeply into pre-modern Jewish thought for ways to think about our relationship to the earth in a post-modern era. That was, that was my primary goal in undertaking this book, The Sacred Earth. And that comes back exactly to what you were saying about this partnership idea. Even in the reform movement, you know, early on, it was a, there was a downgrading of what God was. God was a God idea as opposed to a entity of some sense of reality, right? And ideas are more than just like fanciful things um, in the minds of those folks back then. It is still um, making God almost subjugated to us by God being only an idea in our minds. And that's something else that I was hoping to put forward in this book. And also based on that um, passage from the Talmud and, and the one that you gave as well, that our ancestors did not, that wasn't how they saw our relationship to the world around us. Um, and so being able to go back and take some of that wisdom to having a, a greater sense of what it means to be integrated into the world around us, as opposed to above it, to me is the, is the big project today. I do appreciate you saying that like, I'm not, I'm not trying to say that we shouldn't do anything. <laughs> of course, I think that like legislation is important. I think that we should do as much as we can to cease damaging the environment. Um, but I think, again, one of the, there, there have been two steps in that, in, in that thinking that I've seen happen over the course of perhaps the past 20 years. The first was people saying, we have to save the planet right? We are destroying the planet. We have to save the planet. And if you just take one step back from that, like that's patently absurd. The planet's going to be fine. The planet existed long before we existed. Whatever we do to the planet will eventually, if we end up disappearing, be mitigated somehow through the almost like digestive tract that is how the environment works. It may just be that we won't be there to see it because we will have become so um, so toxic to ourselves on the planet that we don't exist. So then I did see people start saying, actually, we need to fix this for ourselves. We need to save ourselves. And what we're doing is is like basically destroying our own ability to exist. But that then goes to exactly what you were saying before, that it's not just about us. It's about this role that we inhabit inter-species-wide, um, inter, as, as a part of the fabric of life that we need to be focusing on. Not just protecting ourselves, not just protecting the, the planet, but recognizing our actual place within this fabric of life so that as we move forward, and we do have, we will, no matter what we do now, we could turn all of the pollutants off. We could stop with the military industrial complex, which is contributing the vast majority of pollutants to climate change. We could just, if we stop that today, we're already too far gone for things to not change, right? Things are going to become less comfortable and less like normal as you and I grew up with, no matter what we do at this point. But what we can do is mitigate how, how bad that's going to get. And so to me, what's important is 
really affecting the underlying premises that people are working on with working with as they engage in the world um, to rethink humanity's overall place here, as opposed to just pushing people towards climate action. Yeah, which I think speaks to the project of the book, which is what I wanted to ask you about. You know, I, as I'm looking through the various essays in this book, there's a whole range of approaches here. And right? we're not just talking about climate action. We're talking about theology and liturgy, um, spirituality, halakha, Jewish law. So, you know, we're talking about prayer. We're talking about what Jews believe. We're talking about what the Torah teaches and so we're really talking about changing hearts and minds here, about reframing the way that we think about our relationship with the earth as human beings. And you, you said you said something like that earlier when you talked about the difference between the hierarchical model and the, I guess the, I don't know exactly what to call it, but the model where we are part of nature. We're part of nature as opposed to separate from nature, as opposed to some kind of a pinnacle of of nature. So I mean what do you what do you think Judaism has to contribute to that conversation? Why is it so important to be talking about this through through a Jewish lens? Oh that is that's a great question. Thank you. So one which I've already said a couple times but I do want to just reiterate our ancient texts are pre-modern. They do not have within the, them the assumptions that we hold today about our relationship to nature. They have a completely different view of what it means to be human in relationship to everything else in the world. Um, there, one of the essays in the book by Rabbi Nate DeGroote is all about how there was no word for nature because that concept didn't exist. Like it was all one thing, which I think is really important to remember. One of the things from kind of a historical perspective that was really important to me when thinking about this book too, is to name very clearly that we, especially in the reform movement, I'm speaking now as a, a reform rabbi, we very explicitly attempted to become modern. We tried to syncretize our ancient pre-modern texts with modern thought as a way of becoming modern as a response in particular to the desire for Jews primarily in Germany in the uh, 18th and 19th centuries to become equals. Like mm -hmm. I do not um, blame our ancestors, the early reform rabbis for doing this. I think it was a, I understand why they did it. I think it was a brilliant idea. And I think that some brilliant work came out of it, particularly from Abraham Geiger and Kaufman Kohler about what it means to be Jewish through a modern lens. But the problem is um, we went too far and it became assumed that that was what Torah always was, right? Um, and they, tried, they, they framed it that way purposefully because they were trying to pull themselves out from under the um, millennia of anti-Semitism in Germany by saying, actually, you know, we are equals to you. We have this, the, these truths that come from even before Christianity had it. So um, like, stop persecuting us. We're good. Let us just be German Jews and we'll be fine. Like that's what they were trying to do. And they did a great job of it. Um, and that worked in America too, and Canada as well. But now we're hitting a wall with that. And we have to not only retread 
where they took us. So I think it's important that we once again study Geiger and study Kohler and study these um, early kind of modernizers of Judaism to understand where they were coming from, how they did it, and what we can still learn from them as we try to undermine the project of modernity um, in order to build something for the future, which still remains unnamed, right? I think that it's really important to lift up that um, when you, you said, I don't know what to call it, there's no word for it yet, which means we are just at the beginning of um, and that's really what I want this book to be, is a re-evaluation and rediscovery of how we can be in the world a little bit differently with a little bit more shalom, peace, and wholeness for not just us, but for our relationship to the entire world. Yeah, you said something really powerful that at first I thought I was going to push back at something you were saying, but then it turned out that we were thinking the same thing. Which is, I was thinking that in some ways, those those thinkers of early modernity you're talking about, Kaufman Kohler, uh, Abraham Geiger, I would throw in Hermann Cohen, they weren't wrong. Yes. When they said to the German Jews around them, look at these truths that we had even before even before Christianity had, they weren't wrong. That was true. And and I think that points up the idea, the way that modernity is actually a continuation of something that the Western world has been doing for a long time, and that actually in many ways is born out of the hierarchical teachings of the first chapter of Genesis. So I think that on the one hand, we're looking to return to something that I think is sort of hinted at in the texts, which is that Jews and Israelites before them didn't always think in those hierarchical ways. We have different ways of understanding our relationship to the earth that are not borne out in the, the violent uh, schema of modernity, even though the violent schema of modernity also has its basis in things that Judaism and Christianity have been teaching for a very long time. Underneath that, if you read between the lines of the text, you can find evidence that even the Torah is the result of a a kind of a centralization process. We're centralizing gods into God. We're centralizing humanity into the ruler of the planet. And so I think even the Torah represents a shift toward something that's more hierarchical and that ultimately leads to the, the mess that we're in today, which means that just like the early reformers, sorry for getting all philosophical, but now you, you, you made me do this, just like the early reformers read Torah through the lens of what they thought were the needs of the society in which they were living, so do we need to. Because in fact, that, has, that is what Jews have done in every generation. We can look at the text and we can, we can understand the needs of the current moment. And we can look for wisdom embedded in our texts that can speak to the moment that we're trying to create. Which I think actually means we're not going back to Egypt we're going forward. We are looking to frame a new way of understanding our relationship to the earth, not the one we had in modernity, not the one we had in pre-modernity, and not the one that wrote Genesis chapter one or Genesis chapter two, but those texts can continue to inform what we now understand to be true and what we believe must be true going forward. Does that make sense what I'm saying? 100%, absolutely. And I think I think that um, just from a biblical critical point of view, right? Like the first Genesis story 
is actually the second Genesis story. It was, it's the later one. The, the beginning of Genesis is part of the priestly um, kind of layer of Torah. And then Genesis 2, the more kind of um, mythological feeling one where you've got God talking to Adam and Eve and the talking serpent and all of that is an earlier text. Right. And so it speaks exactly to what you're saying, which is that there was this move towards centralization. And we know that that happened um, again, to go back to what I was talking about earlier, that happened during the monarchy. And our Tanakh tells us that God didn't want the monarchy to happen. <laughs> right. So this is a there is this ongoing conflict throughout Jewish text. And I think one of one of the biggest issues that we um, have to confront um, when having this particular conversation is the binaristic nature of modern thinking that like, okay, so if there are two stories, one of them must be right. No, exactly like you're saying, there are all of these stories, many of which were in conflict, which I was talking about earlier, even with this spy story, right? Like the recounting of it in the book of Numbers and the recounting of it in the book of Deuteronomy are two different versions of the same story. Our ancestors that edited together the Torah had the same like physiological brains we did, right? Like they knew those things were in conflict. They knew they were putting stories next to each other that actually contradicted each other. And they were doing it on purpose, specifically, at least in my view, for exactly what you're saying. It gives us this generative tension from the Torah that allows us to build a new with something old. It's Hadesh Yamenu Kakedem. It's renew our days today as we did long ago. And so it's not either or, it's trying to figure out what this tension can generate for us today, which was another one of the um, foundational ideas I had when, wanting, when I began to put this book together. Um, most of the CCR Press, this isn't a series of CCR Press books called um, CR Challenge and Change series. And the vast majority of these books previously were um, essays of reform rabbis, um, which makes sense. You know, the CCR Press is the reform rabbinic press. Um, this book is not primarily reform rabbis. There are a lot of reform rabbis in it. But my goal was to help push forward the movement towards synthesis of a new way of understanding our relationship to the world from a variety of sources. So we've got a lot of renewal rabbis, we've got a lot of academics, we've got a lot of conservative rabbis, we've got um, some orthodox rabbis that are bringing in ideas from outside of the reform kind of mainstream. And that was purposeful to me because these books ultimately um, are used for two purposes. One, to engage reform rabbis and to give reform rabbis um, new information. And two is teaching tools for reform rabbis. So this book also on the CCAR Press webpage has a, um, a learning guide to go along with it for rabbis to teach it in their communities. And to me, that the goal is to seed exactly the ideas you were talking about, recognizing we are in this moment in which we need to 
reframe and reorient to do real chuva, not just repentance, but that reorientation work of chuva about our relationship to the world around us going forward. And the best way in my mind to actually seed that work is by diversifying the viewpoints pretty heavily. I wonder in the time we have left, I could talk philosophy and biblical criticism with you for the rest of the day, but um, do you want to maybe lift up a couple of um, teachings from this, from the piece, maybe give us a sense of, of some of the different directions and varieties and a couple of the messages that you really want to share? Yes, thank you. It's broken up into a, a, a bunch of different parts. The first one's theology. The second one's Jewish text. The third one is encountering the divine, which means um, people sharing their own kind of personal um, experiences with God through nature. And the last one is sacred time, the way that um, Jewish time plays into our relation to the world. Oh, and that's not the last one, excuse me. And the fifth one is contemporary responses. So ways that we can actually um, behave differently going forward or rethink um, in specific reaction to our moment. Just to to pick out a couple pieces. One I already mentioned, which is Rabbi Nate DeGroote's, um, about the idea that the, the concept of nature itself is relatively new to Judaism, I think is very important. Um, but the, the essay that's immediately after that is about the second paragraph of uh, the Be'a Hafta, which the reformers cut out. The early reformers cut it out because it wasn't modern enough, because it has this idea within it that if you behave properly, then um, then your relationship to the world around you will be one of bounty. The um, rains will come in their proper time, the, um, the crops will grow, and you will live bountifully. But if you do not behave properly, um, the skies will close up, the rain will not come in its proper time, you will starve, it'll be bad. And in early modernity, you can understand why they'd be like, no, 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 no. We rule the world. The world does not rule us. And so we must cut this paragraph out of our daily prayers because it is not in keeping with modernity. But now we see in our contemporary time that, yes, it's actually true. These lines from Deuteronomy are accurate. If we behave poorly, if we don't pay attention to our relationship to the world around us, and we act as if our needs and desires in this coming moment are more important than the way we impact the future and the entirety of the world, then the world is going to turn on us, as we see happening. So there's um, a whole chapter by uh, Rabbi Devorah Lynn about this, which I think is extremely powerful and a really, really good example of what it means to reach back through, not over, but through the thinking of our modern forebears, understand where they were coming from, and then also bring something back passed through them once again, not to cut them out, not to say they were 100% wrong, not to say we should be ashamed of them or something, but to understand how we got to where we are and reach back further to maybe reshape it. I haven't read that chapter, but I do know that Rabbi Richard Levy famously reworked that middle passage of the, of the Shema for the 2007 uh, reform prayer book. So Mishkan Tefillah has sort of snuck into it a, an environmental 
reading of the middle paragraph, which says what you're saying, right? If we act in certain ways, then we actually do have the power to make the rains flow and to make the and to make the earth yield, which is exactly what that middle paragraph of the Shema that we cut out 150 years ago was saying. So it's I think it's worth noting that that idea has made its way back into Reformed Jewish thought and is even in our prayer book if you know where to look for it, not in the traditional way, but in a creative environmental reading, this is now a part of our liturgy once again. And I have a sense that, you know, the next time we create a prayer book, which I don't think is underway, could be another 15, 20 years, that these ideas will make it back into our liturgy in a much more significant way even than they did 15 years ago. Yeah, and you had one more teaching, I think, to share with us, right? Yeah, there's one more uh, chapter. I mean, there, it's it's hard to pick because they're all so important to me. Um, as the editor of this book, like I've watched all of these chapters go through so such a process. Um, but another one that I think is um, particularly tangibly helpful, um, it's written by Rabbi Dean Shapiro, who is now a rabbi, reform rabbi in uh, New Zealand. Um, and it's called Beit Atid. And his idea is to add a layer to synagogues um, because they are, you know, house of study, house of prayer, um, house of gathering. But he thinks that they need to become houses of the future. And that instead of just thinking about what they do to function in those three ways today and how they have been doing it um, for a long time, because many synagogues are very stuck in um, wanting to do things as they've been done, because that's what brings people comfort. And I think that there is that is highly, highly important for our communities to have a place that they can go, know what's going to happen, feel comfortable there. And like, that's their, that's their third place, right? It's not work. It's not home. It's their synagogue where they can go and trust that it's going to be a place of comfort and learning and spiritual uplift. But he suggested also adding Beta T, house of the future to synagogues, where we not only think about how things are now, but we do take seriously where the world is going, specifically where that synagogue is, right? Like climate change is affecting people differently depending upon where they are. So look at where you are, look at what the climate and the area is going to be like 20 years from now, 50 years from now, based on solid science, bring in young people, teens, to think about what they want for their community 20 years from now, 50 years from now, and take that stuff seriously. Start planting those trees. There's this wonderful story in the Talmud um, of a man being asked why he's planting new um, carob trees when he's clearly in his 70s and not going to live to see their fruit. And he said, because I had carob when I came around, because my ancestors planted it before me, I want the people that come after me to have carob to eat as well. We need to make sure that those people that come after us also have carob to eat from our synagogues. And so transforming them, not even transforming them, adding a layer to them of beta teed, I think is a really important way of thinking about um, not just how to be more environmentally friendly with our synagogues, but how to actually make sure that our synagogues are playing a role in this future and this world that is to come, um, that is going to be very, very different than what we have experienced and what we are currently experiencing. Yeah, thank you for that. Ultimately, I think it's about covenant and partnership, that we are in covenant, not only with God, not only with each other as a people, but actually with the future as well. We have a responsibility 
to be thinking about what it is that we're leaving. What is the legacy that we're leaving to um, to those who will come after us? And I think your book really contributes a lot to helping us reframe the way we relate to the earth, the way we think about ourselves as inhabitants of and a part of this planet that we're living on. So Rabbi Andy Khan, I want to thank you for spending some time talking with me uh, today. I could have talked to you for another couple hours. Um, and and thanks for this uh, for this really important work, for the really important thinking that you're doing um, about the environment and about our our place on Earth as Jews and as and as human beings. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me on. This is a wonderful podcast. And I appreciate you putting all this work um, into it every week um, and for helping everybody have greater access to Torah. And, uh, you know, I'd love to be back anytime you want me. Thanks again to Rabbi Andy Khan for this really interesting conversation. I like the idea that we're reframing our relationship with the earth, with the planet, and also with our texts, not going backwards, but rather going forward, making modern meaning out of ancient texts, if you will, and thinking about who we are in this moment and going forward. We're also continuing to make our way through the Torah, and when we come back next week, we'll talk about the rebellion of Korach as the Jewish people move through the wilderness toward the Promised Land. See you then. 7-Minute Torah is a production of La Asok, Sacred Texts, Modern Meaning. If you enjoy this program, please consider becoming a sponsor at patreon.com slash 7-Minute Torah. For more information about upcoming learning opportunities, go to laasoka.org, L-A-A-S-O-K dot org. I'm Rabbi Micah Streifer. Thanks for listening.